The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, a couple of announcements. Uh, White Oak Baptist Church has opened their uh, doors to take in uh, refugees, and a pastor and about 25 families in his congregation from uh, New Orleans are now domiciled in the gym here. And so we would also like to uh, give people an opportunity to participate in helping out. These folks don't have a whole lot, and I think that there's a list over here on the left that uh, tells you about, uh, it's, I think it's taped on the wall, gives you information about what they need, uh, what we could supply, things of that nature. Also down on the table, we have a printout that's a brochure for the Israel trip that will give you an idea about the Israel trip. Anything else? I guess that's enough. Okay, if the cameras are ready and the sound's ready, before we get started this evening, let's take some time to focus on the Lord to... Uh, take the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can be here this evening, that we have a dry place to meet, and that we have a roof over our heads, and that uh, we're safe and secure. Father, we continue to observe all of the uh, trauma, all of the cataclysm, all of the chaos that has resulted from this storm. And Father, we pray for those who are in charge to give them wisdom and skill and uh, administrative ability and organizational skill as they seek to rescue people. And we pray that you would... Uh, use this opportunity in the lives of many people to bring them to a focus on spiritual realities. And I know from discussions I've had today that there are many pastors and congregations that have had to flee uh, New Orleans and pastors who now don't have churches but have congregations they still care for. We pray that you would give them opportunities to be steadfast witnesses to your truth, and that even in the midst of disaster, we have a God who is not surprised and a God who can supply everything we need and has supplied everything we need. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study this evening, that we can come to a greater understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he is doing for us during this dispensation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and I don't know about you, but it seems a mite warm in here, so I hope nobody falls asleep. I hope I don't fall asleep. I'm ready to, almost ready to step down. It's so warm. I don't think well when it's warm. You know, you're worried about getting up here and sweating a lot. Okay, Hebrews chapter 2. We're in the beginning of this new section. Last time we did a survey of the whole section from 2.5 down to 4.13. So now we're going to step back and we're going to take our time exegeting our way through these sections because the writer is building a very important case for what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing today, seated at the right hand of God the Father, what qualified him to get there, and how his current ministry is preparing us for a future rule and reign with him. And in the midst of this, he has to lay the groundwork for how the Lord Jesus Christ, in his humanity, laid the foundation, blazed the trail, 
for our spiritual life. He was the pioneer of our spiritual life. He is the archetype. So we are to look to Him. That's why when you come to, towards the end and the final exhortation in Hebrews 12, it gives that command, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. To understand the significance of that command, we, we start back here in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So with chapter 2, verse 5, we enter into the second section. Now, let me remind you how this is developed. We have a prologue that started in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, which focused on the fact that God has in these days, this church age, spoken to us by His Son. It's a complete finished revelation. And then the second main point he talks about is who the Son is and what Jesus Christ is now doing. That he has, uh, that he is upholding all things by the word of his power, and his current position is the result of his past completed work on the cross. And because of what he did on the cross, where he purged our sins, he has now been promoted and elevated in his humanity over the angels. And that sets the transition from verse 4 to verse 5, where the focus in verses 5 through 13 is on the superiority of the Messiah over the angels. And the writer of Hebrews goes back to eight different Old Testament citations in order to demonstrate that this was foreseen, predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament, that the Messiah would rule over the angels. And then there's a conclusion. That conclusion is a, an application and a warning in verses 1 through 4, that relates the fact that if God has given us this revelation, and it's so far superior to the revelation of the Old Testament, and that if that incomplete Old Testament revelation brought such dire consequences upon those who treated it lightly, how much more will God hold us accountable when we've had this complete revelation that has come to us from the Lord Jesus Christ? And so the challenge is, how shall we escape judgment, condemnation from the Lord, even though we're saved, divine discipline, uh, if we neglect such a great salvation? Then there's a transition now in verse 5. Verse 5 says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Now, what he's doing in verse 5 is going back and picking up the thread of this idea. He's going back to chapter 1. He's picking up this thread related to, to Jesus Christ's superiority to the angels. He's pulling it over the application, and now he's going to expand on this illustration and this point to, and develop it into an understanding of the sanctification that the Lord Jesus Christ went through in His perfect humanity. So this first section, verses 5 through 9, focus on the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ and His elevation over the angels. And it begins with the Greek word gar, which is translated for and always indicates an explanation. So he, he starts off with this explanation. I find it fascinating. Several times he starts off a, almost a brand new topic with this introductory particle. He either starts with a but or he starts with a gar. Uh, for. For. Or it almost has the idea because. It's not quite the same word, but it's, it, it's more of a logical inference or explanation. And he says, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to the angels. So the point of this section from 5 through 9 is that God subordinated the angels and indeed all of creation under the authority of the glorified Son of Man. Now if we just take a a quick overview of these five verses... It begins with this reference back where we pick up this thread that's in the past and bring it forward. 
He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subordination to angels. And then in verse 9 we read, But we see, that is right now, we currently see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, that is a, this, this is a tremendous verse, and I'm not sure we're going to get into all of it. At least we're not going to take it apart as much as I would like to tonight, because we have to build to that. That's our conclusion. And the way he moves is to start with the statement that, that the angels are subordinate to him, and then he goes back to the Old Testament. He goes back to the Old Testament, picks up these uh, three verses from the Old Testament, from Psalm 8, and applies them to the Messiah. The interesting thing is that Psalm 8, which these verses will be familiar to many of you, Psalm 8 was never understood by the Jews as a messianic psalm. What's interesting is I think it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Each time it's quoted, it's quoted in close proximity to Psalm 110.1, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, uh, until I make your enemies your footstool. And that's quoted in uh, Hebrews chapter 1.13. So he's gone back, ties these things together, and it's a very intricate argument. I, the more I get into things like this, the more I realize how many layers of understanding there are in the Bible. I mean, some of you all have been Christians. You've been reading your Bible a long time. Others of you are fairly new. And as you go through this study, especially this Hebrew study, which I know is a little bit heavy, because Hebrews is one of the more difficult books to understand in in the Scripture, you begin to realize that as you read these verses, you begin to see things and relationships to other doctrines and other verses that you never saw before. And that's, that's one of the great things about Bible study, is that the more you study the Scriptures, the more the Lord opens your eyes to see the things that are there and to put the connections together, because all of the Scripture is interconnected. All of it relates to one another in some way. It is a unified whole representing the coherent and cogent thinking of a God who is omniscient. And so you just don't understand the Bible by simply picking it up and reading it. So many people think that you can. Now, you'll understand certain things. And I'm not, never would I discourage you from reading the Bible on a daily basis. Every believer needs to do that. Because it gives you that basic frame of reference for all the biblical events, who did what, when, where, why. It familiarizes you with the promises of God as you read through the Psalms, you read through the Proverbs. There are many verses that are great promises that we need to memorize and use in the faith rest drill. And the more we become familiar with these things, the more the Holy Spirit uses it in just, in, in just developing those building blocks of understanding that are the foundation of spiritual growth and spiritual understanding. We need to develop uh, a people... I mean, we've had this in the church in the past. There have been different times in church history where there's been a strong influence from churches, from biblical thinkers that have thought deeply and profoundly about what the Scripture says, and it's impacted all of culture. Sadly, because of the influence of, of pagan ideas on the church the last hundred years, we've diluted it so much that people are under the impression, many, many uh, unbelievers are just under the impression that church is nothing more than, a, than a, uh, a, another attempt to just teach people how to have confidence and how to feel good about themselves. It's nothing more than another motivational endeavor. And that's, the, the Scripture's a, a far cry from that. Sure, there's things in there that are motivational, but there's also things in there that correct us. So we need to get into a, 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 a deeper understanding of the word, and I don't mean that in some sort of mystical sense. I mean thinking more precisely about what the writer is trying to communicate. So we start off here, we read for, this is an explanation, for he, that is God the Father, has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to the angels. Now the first key word that I want to analyze is the word world, for he has not put the world. 
Now we know that there's a couple of different Greek words that are translated world in our English Bible. One is the word cosmos, which has to do with an orderly, uh, recognizable system. And it talks about the system of thought that characterizes the world. It talks about the systems of thought that characterize different cultures, whether it's an ancient Greek culture, ancient Roman culture, modern Western culture, or Asian culture. This is covered by that word cosmos. Uh, Another word that is sometimes used or sometimes translated world is the Greek word ionos. And we saw that word used back in Hebrews chapter 1, where it talks about the fact that uh, uh, Jesus is the one who, uh, through whom he made the world. And the concept there is ionos, that is the ages, that Jesus Christ is the one who is the uh, contractor who oversees the progress of the dispensations down through history. But this word picks up another idea, and that's the idea of the inhabited world, the inhabited earth. It's the word oikomene. And oiku, the first part of the word, is from the Greek oikos, meaning house or a place where you dwell. So it's a it's a reference to the inhabited world. He, God the Father, has not put the inhabited world, which is to come. It's a uh, relative, feminine relative uh, pronoun with the verb uh, mele, meaning to come. So the phrase world to come has reference to the future millennial kingdom. For God the Father has not put the world to come. So the focus here is on the future. The focus is on the millennium. The focus is on where we're headed. And so a corrected translation would read, For he, God the Father, did not subordinate to the angels. And the reason I translate it that way is the very first word in the Greek text is not. And then you have uh, the word gar or for, which always has to take the second position in a And and the sentence, that's a grammatical rule in Greek. It's never the first, it's always the second. That's why it was, it's called post-positive. For those of you who've had a little Greek, it always comes second. But then the third word is angels. And so the beginning of the the sentence is not the angels. It's boldface, underlined. That's what God is saying. For not to the angels did I subordinate the inhabited world which is to come. Or we could take that concept of oikumene, uh, the future human civilization of which we speak. So what are we talking about? Right here in the passage it says that what we're talking about in this epistle is that future destiny, that world to come, because we have to focus our attention on where we're going so that we can prepare today for that future event. Now, in the history of the world, there are four great periods of time or four great periods of civilization. So we'll just summarize this under ten points. The doctrine of civilizations, it gives us a historical orientation. First point, there are only four great periods of time related to the inhabited earth. Four great periods of time related to the inhabited earth. Three of them relate to the present earth. And one relates to the future earth. Four great periods of time. They're not dispensations and they're not ages. This is perhaps the broadest time category that we can talk about, is these broad uh, categories of civilizations. The second point. Each of these periods of inhabitation begins a new civilization. There's a complete beginning anew in each of these periods. Third point, each period of civilization begins with believers only. This is one thing, they, what they have in common. Each period of civilization begins with believers only, and three of them end with a cataclysmic judgment where the entire inhabited world is judged. All that's left after that is a group of believers, and it's that group of believers that begins the next period of civilization. So what you have is a period of blessing where God begins to to fill the earth with people. For example, at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, tells them to... 
Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Begins with believers, but by the end of that first period, you have cataclysmic judgment on the earth. All the unbelievers are killed and only eight survive. So that takes us to our fourth point. Each civilization may be subdivided into various ages or dispensations. In that first civilization, which begins with, uh, begins with Adam and goes to Noah, there's three dispensations indicated by covenants. See, every dispensation has to be, has to be moved or ended and, and shifted to the next one through some sort of divine revelation. It doesn't just happen. There, there, there's a revelation from God, and this is given in the form of a contract or a covenant. So each civilization usually covers maybe a couple of ages and several dispensations. Fifth, each civilization has its own characteristic related to the Adamic curse. That's foundational. There's, there's change that happens, and that's always related to sin. So these elements that we look at have to do with climate. Because God created Adam and Eve in perfect environment, perfect weather. It was perfect, didn't have humidity, didn't have that hot sun beating down on you, didn't have hurricanes and ice storms and all of those things that destroy so much today. In fact, I'm not, in fact, we didn't have that kind of weather even in the antediluvian period. But during perfect environment, there's perfect weather. Then there, the second element that we look at is man's relationship to the animals. This changes in every one of these, these ages, how man relates to God's other creatures, specifically the animals. The kinds of animals change. There are different kinds of animals in the different civilizations. And there's a difference in how man relates to God in each of these dispensations, each of these civilizations. So, how do you look at these characteristics? Well, there's three periods of the current earth, and those are the antediluvian, the antediluvian period, which is the period prior to the Noahic flood. Then there's the post-diluvian civilization, which began at the end of the Noahic flood and extends to the second coming of Christ. And then there's the third civilization, which is the millennial civilization. That ends with a judgment, and then you begin the eternal state, which is the fourth civilization. So the three on this earth are the antediluvian civilization, the post-diluvian civilization, and the millennial civilization. And as I think about this, I often think that the technology in each civilization is different. Those of you who've hung with me through the early chapters of Genesis, when we went through Genesis 1 through 11, I made the observation that the population of the earth at the time of the Noahic flood was at a minimum uh, two and a half billion. Well, that's quite large. That's as large many people on the earth as there were a hundred years ago or so. Now we're closer to six billion. There could have been that many on the earth. And these were uh, in, vastly intelligent people. And they had a technology of some, some uh, value. We know that after the, uh, after the flood, that, there, that they, the early uh, generations sailed the seas of the earth and mapped all the oceans. You have uh, a book that's still available today called Charts of the Ancient Sea Kings. And in that book, you see a, there's a map of Antarctica underneath the ice cap. Now, how did they know where all the rivers and valleys and mountains were under the ice cap of Antarctica? Well, they, they, did, they knew because there wasn't an ice cap there, and they were able to go there and see it without the ice cap and map everything. And it wasn't until the 20th century when we had satellites with infrared uh, capabilities, infrared camera capability that could take pictures and through the ice, and then we could map it out and get and, Lo and behold, you have these ancient maps, very ancient maps, that are 100% accurate. Now, who did that? Well, it was those descendants of Noah. And in order to map anything with that level of precision, you have to be able to do both latitude and longitude. And with longitude, you have to have 
you have to be able to have a precise clock that isn't going to have parts that expand and contract as a result of, of a humidity. You have to have a clock that's going to be stable, that despite the uh, uh, ups and downs and a, and a rough sea, that it's not going to affect its uh, ability to keep accurate time. And you have to have, if you have metal parts, they're not going to rust and corrode over time. So you have to have all those things. And it wasn't until, what, about 1770s that Western civilization produced a time clock that was capable of allowing uh, seamen to chart longitude. So this is a tremendous advance, yet... We have these ancient maps that were precise in both latitude and longitude. That shows the tremendous technology they had that Noah and his sons brought with them from the antediluvian civilization into the present civilization. And they probably had many other things. It probably wasn't a, civ- uh, a culture, though, that was based on oil like we have today. It was based on other things. It's possible they had uh, flight capacity. It's possible they had all kinds of engineering capabilities. Even now, we don't know how, with the primitive tools that were available, how the ancients built the pyramids. They understood uh, trigonometry and geometry and astronomy, and they knew how to do all of these advanced mathematical calculations in order to construct those pyramids. Many of them were designed to worship the astral gods, so they're all lined up in perfection, yet this is supposed to be primitive man. And who's not real bright. You know, they're just coming out of the uh, primordial ooze and just beginning to, to walk around without dragging their knuckles. And yet we can't duplicate their, their achievements on the basis of the technology that we understand that they had. So you have these three periods, the antediluvian period, the post-diluvian period, and the millennial period, different climates, different animal relationships, different relationship to God, different technology. Seventh point. Antediluvian period began with two believers, Adam and Eve. Had perfect environment, perfect harmony with the animals. All the animals are grass eaters. They're not eating one another. That affects their, uh, affects their, their teeth. That affects their uh, gastrointestinal system. affected everything. And, uh, and they had the presence of God on the earth. And as I pointed out when we went through Genesis, for those of you who weren't around then or haven't heard those messages, in Genesis 6, it states, about verse 2 or 3, states that God said, and the old King James said, My spirit will not strive with men anymore. And that's how many people have understood that. That, that now that you have this situation with the sons of God taking daughters of men as their wives, that God's tired of putting up with men and having this antagonism. But the Hebrew word that is translated strive in that verse is what's called a hapax legomena. Hapax means one time and one time only. That's the only usage of that word in all of Hebrew literature. And that always presents a problem. There's about 11 or 1,200 words in the Hebrew Old Testament that are hapoxes. They're only used one time. So in order to figure out what they mean, you have to investigate the context, which helps you limit the field of meaning. But then you have to go to related languages, which are called cognate languages. And fortunately, the Semitic language group is a very close-knit linguistic family so that there are... Uh, very close similarities between Arabic, Hebrew, Northwest Semitic or Canaanite, Akkadian, uh, Aramaic, and these, these other languages. And they're all built on consonants only. They didn't have vowels to begin with. Uh, they had them in their spoken language, but not in their written language. And if a lot of times the difference between an Arabic word and a Hebrew word is simply the vowels. The consonants remain the same. And I understand that if you're, if you're, you speak modern Hebrew, that you can somewhat understand what a modern Arabic speaker is saying simply because the languages are so close to each other. So we go back into the documents that archaeologists discover, all of the various uh, libraries of Ashurbanipal and the libraries up at Ebla and these various things, and we study these languages and you find wor- the, the cognate words that relate to Biblical Hebrew. And then you go look in your Aramaic Dictionary, and your Akkadian Dictionary, and your Ugaritic Dictionary, and you look for these 
uh, cognates, and, and you see that this word, when it's used in Akkadian and in Ugaritic, has the idea of abiding, living, or dwelling somewhere. So in Genesis 6, God isn't saying, I'm not going to strive with men anymore. He's saying, I'm not going to dwell with them anymore. What do you mean he's not going to dwell? There wasn't a tabernacle, there wasn't a temple. Well, wait a minute. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. What it says is that God was dwelling on the earth and he built the Eden to, I mean, the garden to the east of Eden. He had a dwelling place. Why is it that he posts a, a guard of cherubs outside the uh, garden of Eden with this flaming sword? It's to prevent fallen, unrighteous man from having access to the tree of life as well as to, to God. This was still a holy place. That was the centerpiece of, of God's uh, activity on the earth. I've often wondered why it was that we waited until, our God waited until after the flood before he delegates authority, judicial authority to man. Well, didn't they need ju- judges, judicial authority but prior to the flood? Sure they did. Well, who did it? Well, God did it. He was still on the earth. So you see the antediluvian period in some ways mirrors, imitates, or foreshadows what's going to happen during the millennial kingdom. Millennial kingdom, you're going to have once again the presence of God upon the earth. It's going to, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rule the earth. There will be a dwelling place for him in Israel at the temple. And all the nations will come to worship there. And ultimately, all adjudication will, will be handled by the Supreme Court of Heaven that is present on the earth. So there is a balance, as it were, between the antediluvian civilization and the future millennial uh, kingdom. There's also parallels with the animals. So we'll look at this. You have uh, in the antediluvian kingdom, there's perfect environment, harmony with the animals. You see harmony with the animals again when we come to the millennial kingdom. And in the future, in the millennial kingdom, the lion will lie down with the lamb, child will put his hand in the cobras, all these things. Isn't that neat? I mean, you don't have to worry about these poor folks over in Louisiana. I saw one of the most horrible stories I saw was this family that uh, in the storm, got the road washed out or they ran off the road, and uh, they were just outside an alligator farm. When they were rescued, there were like 15, 20 alligators surrounding the car waiting. How'd you like to be there? Fortunately, they were rescued and they're doing fine, but uh, there's harmony with the animals. We're not going to have to worry about being eaten alive by alligators or lions or tigers or anything else. But in, and the same thing was true in the, that early environment. You have the presence of God on the earth. It deteriorated some due to the flood. There was some, de- I mean, not the flood. It deteriorated due to the fall. And because of Adam's sin, there's a change in the animals, there's a change in man's relationship to the animals, but the real hostility doesn't come about until after the flood. In the Noahic Covenant, it specifically stated that God would put fear for man on the animals, and there would be fear, and, but man could now eat meat. Man wasn't a meat eater prior to the flood, so you can't come up with a religious reason for being a vegetarian. Now, you may be a vegetarian because it makes you feel better or... You have digestive issues that that's better for, but you can't use a religious reason for being a vegetarian because the Noahic Covenant specifically mandates uh, eating meat to the, for the human race. That's one of the differences between the antediluvian civilization and the present civilization. So we come to point, point eight. This is the post-diluvian civilization began after the flood with eight believers. So the first civilization begins with two believers, Adam and Eve, goes for about 2,000 years, and then there's cataclysmic judgment, and you have about two or three billion people on the planet and only eight believers. Those eight believers survive. They float their way into the next civilization, and there's a change now. There's a change in the way man relates to the animals. There's also different animals. I believe the dinosaurs lived during the antediluvian civilization. They lived alongside of man. That uh, Often people say, well, how could dinosaurs live with men? The same way lions and tigers and crocodiles live with men today. They don't live in the same place. But they share the same planet. 
and they don't have to locate in the same same uh, geographical area. You also have various legends and so many legends that are so close in their details that uh, indicate that you had uh, dinosaur-type creatures survive even into the early Middle Ages. They were usually slaughtered by men who were later uh, idolized and became great heroes. And uh, the story of Beowulf is the story of one of them. And if you read the story of the monster that he killed, it sounds an awful lot like a Tyrannosaurus rex. So you have some of these animals survived, but they couldn't uh, adapt to the uh, present uh, climate because there's a climate shift. Now you have uh, extremes between hot and cold. You have the development of ice caps, ice ages, and you have this rapid uh, shift that takes place uh, after the flood. It's like the whole system just got rattled, and, and it's as if you were to throw a, a boulder into a pool of water. It would set off huge waves near the epicenter of the impact, but the further you get away from the impact, the, the lower the waves are and the further apart they become. And we see the same thing, in, I think, in the geophysical history of the planet and the meteorological history of the planet. You have uh, earthquakes and storms, ice ages, global warming and cooling has been going on ever since the flood. It's not because the human race decided to come along and start uh, having internal combustion engines. Uh, the Vikings didn't have internal combustion engines. They weren't polluting the atmosphere with a lot of hydrofluorocarbons back at the uh, uh, 9th and 10th century. And when they went to uh, a little place called Greenland, they called it Greenland because it was green and they had farms. And, and there's a period of time there in the 8th, 9th, uh, 10th century where there was a tremendous warm-up and meteor meteorologists referred to it as a period of warming and, and then all of a sudden it got cold again and, and they had to leave and the, the civilization that they were trying to plant in the colonies in Greenland collapsed. And uh, it didn't have anything to do with human technology. It has to do with different things going on in the atmosphere since the uh, universal flood of Noah's time and also with uh, sunspots and how that interacts with the atmosphere because it doesn't have a that canopy around it anymore. There's a lot of different reasons, but if you start with evolutionary presuppositions, you're going to end up making bad uh, application because your science is flawed by taking the Bible out of the picture. This is why it's so important to study creation. So you have a shift in the post-Diluvian civilization, and then this civilization is going to change. It's going to end up in just a, a tremendous cataclysm of judgments in the tribulation period. We think that what happened in New Orleans this last week is, is bad, and it is horrible. And we look at that devastation, and this is one Category 5 hurricane. And what you're going to see during the tribulation is super hurricanes. You've had the same kind of thing during the flood. You're going to see super hurricanes, you're going to have earthquakes, and the earth is going to be impacted by a massive uh, asteroid of some kind that's going to set off a tsunami that's going to make the one that hit uh, Southeast Asia last winter uh, look like just a, a small little ripple on the ocean. And you're going to have two or three different types of events that take out at one point a quarter of the Earth's population and then just a uh, short time later, a couple of years later, another event that will take out about a third of the population. You lose well over half the people on the planet within about a four- or five-year period of time during the tribulation. Now, think about it. We have six billion people on the planet. And when, uh, when this occurs, within a period of about four years, three billion of them are going to die. That's a lot of funerals. And when you start thinking about the uh, disease impact, as we're uh, being told so much about what, what can happen with all these uh, bodies and cadavers floating around in and the water in New Orleans and all the disease that can be bred. You just think about that in the tribulation. So there's going to be a tremendous judgment, and there's the only ones that survive are going to be believers because at the end of the tribulation period, 
when the Lord returns, there's going to be the separation of the wheat from the tares, and the uh, unbelievers from the tribulation are all going to be taken in judgment, so that all that's left is going to be tribulation saints in mortal bodies. They will marry, they will produce children, and this begins the millennial civilization. Again, there's harmony between men and animals, and there's going to be a restored climate that will not be unlike the climate during the period from Adam to Noah. It's going to be a time of where you don't have the storms, where you have more of a universal temperature. It will be a time of a perfect environment. But there's still a deterioration during that period within the human race because as these folks marry and have children, their children are going to have sin natures. And some of them are going to exercise negative volition towards spiritual things and toward Jesus Christ, even though they're living in perfect environment. This is one of the reasons God has the millennium, is to show it's not environment, it's not education, it's not the judicial system. When you screw everything up, you're not going to be able to come along and say, well, you know, FEMA should have been here, and uh, the government should have been here. Where's the mayor? Where's city council? You know, like these people who are in, in New Orleans, so many of them, trying to blame the government right now, saying, well, where's the government? Why aren't they here to rescue us? And what part of get the hell out of New Orleans did they not understand? So you're going to have these people, you're always going to have these kind of people who just exercise negative volition and they hate authority and rebel against authority and they're going to unite with Satan at the end of the millennial kingdom and lead a rebellion against God, which is called the, I misspelled it, Gog and Magog rebellion. Not God and Magog, but Gog, G-O-G and Magog, at the end of the millennium. And that will end the history of this planet. There will be a new planet, the new heavens and the new earth, and that's the fourth civilization. It begins with believers only and extends forever. There will be no change. It will be a time of absolute perfection. And it's so far beyond our comprehension that the Lord just doesn't tell us much. We wouldn't understand it if, we, if he did tell us. Okay, that's the concept behind the world to come. We are looking forward to that third age. We're preparing for that third age. Almost sounds like something out of J.R.R. Tolkien, doesn't it? But we're preparing for that next civilization because in the administration of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to use this group of people called brethren or companions, the Metacoi. Now we go to Hebrews 2.6. Hebrews 2.5 picks up the thread of Christ's superiority to the, to the angels, that in that future kingdom, the angels aren't in charge, Christ and his companions are in charge. And now we're going to go back and see the significance of this as it's developed in a psalm, Psalm 8. So we read in Hebrews 2.6, the introductory quote, but one testified in a certain place saying, this is a very unusual introduction to an Old Testament quote. Now, the writer of Hebrews has unusual introductions to Old Testament quotes, and they're very important for understanding the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Scripture. Because in some places you might have uh, Peter makes a reference to what Paul wrote. Other places Paul says Moses said, and there's a reference to the human author of Scripture. But for the writer of Hebrews, there is no significance to the human author of Scripture. Now, why is that? Because he understands that ultimately it is the divine author of Scripture, God the Holy Spirit, who authors the text, even though there may be variations between the personalities of different authors, their writing style, their history, their background, their personality, all of these things. But as far as the writer of Hebrews is concerned, it doesn't matter who the human author is because it's all guaranteed to be infallible and inerrant because God is the ultimate author of the Scripture. And when he says in this verse, but one testified in a certain place, he's being vague. This also indicates that his readers knew where to go in terms of finding the reference. So we have this odd uh, phrase at the beginning, pu tis lagon, which is the uh, adjective pu, indefinite pronoun pu, which means somewhere... 
He doesn't say in the Psalms. He doesn't say in 1 Samuel or Daniel. He says somewhere. And then he links it to the indefinite pronoun tis. Somewhere someone said. And that's a literal translation. Well, somewhere someone said. What is this? Because he, it just doesn't matter where it is. It's the content that's important. And so he then quotes uh, from the Scripture. Now, another word that he uses, it's very important, is the word dia marturamai. Dia, mar- dia marturamai. But one testified. It's translated testified. It's from the root martureo, which is where we get our English word martyr, and it means a legal witness in a courtroom situation. It has to do with witnessing, testifying, uh, bearing witness in a legal case. Frequently it is translated, so-and-so solemnly testifies, and usually it precedes, or frequently it precedes, a quote from the Scripture or a statement made by Peter or Paul that has significant weight and is probably divinely inspired. So it links us to the legal witness that believers have in the angelic conflict. But one testified in a certain place. It shows the weight of Scripture. We could translate it somewhat, but somewhere someone solemnly testified saying. Now notice that first word, but. I heard a story yesterday that I still shake my head over. There's a lot of pastors in this country that that just should not be pastoring. I heard the story the other day about a pastor who who got up in the pulpit and, and he, he wanted to, I guess, have a little double entendre. And he said, God likes big butts. That was his sermon title. And, of course, he was trying to make a play on the fact that the verse that he was talking about started with a but. But that is, that's as good as it got. And then it went downhill from there. We have a con- uh, it's not really a contrast here as much as it is an introduction, but one somewhere, but somewhere someone solemnly testified saying, and then we have a quote that comes out of Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. For one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. In verse 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. That's the end of the quote. And then the writer of Hebrews is going to explain how he's applying this quote to the current, his current argument. He says, for in that he put all in subjection under him, that is under the Lord Jesus Christ, he, that is God the Father, left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. We don't see it yet. We'll see it in the future. Now let's go back and look at this psalm in context. Psalm 8.3. Might as well turn back to the Old Testament. We're not going to get through all of this tonight, so we'll have to come back and pick it up next week. This is a fantastic psalm of praise to God. It's written by David. We don't know the, con- the, uh, the immediate context, but he begins in verse 1 addressing Yahweh. He says, O Yahweh our Adonai. If you look at your English, you'll see that the first Lord it has small caps, and the second Lord is just lowercase lettering. That small caps of Lord always indicates that Yahweh is the one being uh, is the is the Hebrew word behind that translation. He directly addresses God by His proper covenant name, O Yahweh, our Lord, our Adonai, our Master. How excellent is Your name in all the earth! who have set your glory above the heavens. So he's starting with God as the Creator. And he says how you have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength. In other words, as we see from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, God is the one who uses the foolish to confound the wise. God is not uh, impressed with human ability or human strength. He is the one who is going to demonstrate His power in our weakness. 
And so the focus here is on God, His majesty, His greatness. And as the writer of the Psalms, as David is looking at the creation, he is impressed and awed by everything that God has made in the entire universe. And then he thinks about how puny we are, how insignificant specks of life we are when you compare us to the entire uh, universe. And so in verse 3 he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? So he's focusing on why are we here? What is the significance of man? We're just this little speck of life floating around on this planet, and it can't be uh, just by accident. We're not the result of some uh, uh, chaotic cosmic discharge in a gas cloud that just happened to produce uh, life. Now, as we look at Psalm 8 in light of where where the writer of Hebrews uses it in Hebrews 2... We need to take some time to understand this context because the context isn't focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus, the focus of this passage is on God's plan for the human race. Why is the human race of such significance? And of course, this is going to plop us right in the middle of an understanding of God's plan for the human race in relation to the angelic conflict. When he Gives us this verse, let me back up the slide. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Notice that there's a parallelism between the two uh, strophes there. The first says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the second parallels that. That's how you rhyme in Hebrew. You uh, rhyme ideas not words. And the second line says, and the Son of Man. So, Son of Man is parallel to man. So how do we understand that? Well, the first man, what is man, um, what is man that you're mindful of him? He uses the Hebrew word enosh. Enosh. Which refers to man, or mankind, humanity in general. And usually it has in in mind the weakness, the frailty, the limitations of the human race. What is this finite, limited, weak, frail creature all about? Now, the Septuagint uses the word anthropos. Now, the reason I'm mentioning the Septuagint is because the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews doesn't quote from the, from the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text that underlies the Old Testament. All of his quotes are word-for-word, verbatim quotes taken right out of the Septuagint. So that's why I'm putting that little comparison in there. Now, in the synonymous parallelism of the second strophe you have, or the Son of Man, and here we shift from Enosh to Adam. Adam focuses on man as a creature taken from the ground. The word for ground in Hebrew is Adamah. And so God called Adam Adam because he, God uh, spit on the ground and mixed up some clay and he made the first man whose skin color was the color of clay. It was red or brown. It wasn't white. It wasn't black. It wasn't yellow. It was the color of dirt. Ben Adam, what is the son of man? So he's not using this title as a technical title for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I make that point is because the writer of Hebrews is going to apply this to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to understand why he does that. But the psalm itself is talking about man as being an, a, a, a frail, insignificant, almost trivial creature. And so he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And here is the Greek word, zakar. The Greek, I mean Hebrew word, zakar, it's the cal imperfect, and it means to think about something or to meditate on something, to pay attention to something. In many passages it has the idea of remembering. So it's a, a thought-oriented word. And it has the idea, what is man, God, that you meditate on him, that you pay attention to him, that you think about him. Why is man a focal point of divine thought? 
The Greek word that's used in the Septuagint and quoted when we come to Hebrews 2 is mimneskamai, which means to remember, to consider, or to be mindful of. So it's a good translation. What is man that you think about him? What's, why is man so important that you reflect upon him? And then the second line in parallelism, and the son of man that you visit him. Now this is a interesting little word. In fact, one well-known Hebrew scholar commented that this word's used about 230 times in the Old Testament is one of the most difficult, confusing words for translators to deal with because it covers a lot of territory and it has different nuances in very different contexts. And it's the Hebrew word pakad, and it means in some places just to visit, like God came to visit Abraham. I'm not sure if that's a word that was used there, but that is a word that would be used there, that so-and-so came to visit somebody. And, uh, you know, Texans like to talk about the fact that they get off talking to somebody. Well, we, we visited together for about an hour. You know, that's a little Texas saying. I have to say that for folks who don't live in this part of the country. You know, they miss out on uh, good Texas uh, lingo. Pakad, and it means to attend something with care, to take note, or to exercise oversight over a subordinate. I really like that last nuance that fleshes it out for us. Uh, And the Son of Man, that you are attending Him with care. You pay a lot of attention to Him. You're thinking about Him. The first verse is a car. You're thinking about Him, meditating on Him. Here you see that He's attending Him with care and giving close attention and oversight to man as a subordinate. The Greek Septuagint translates this with the verb episkeptomai, which means to look at something, to inspect it, or to examine it closely. So the idea the psalmist is writing about is, God, why do you pay such close attention to human beings? What's their value? What's their role? What's going on here? Why is the human race significant to you? And it's obvious from the phrase here that the human race is very important to God. There is something tremendously significant about man for God to give him such close attention. This is echoed in other verses in the Old Testament. Psalm 144.3 says, O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? And again in Job 7.17, What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him? Human beings are important to God. Every single human being is important to God. This is why God the Father developed a plan of salvation where he sent his only son, his unique son, to become a human being. And the psalmist said that, that, you, that God... This is the body that you prepared for me. So God, when he's back there in Genesis uh, 1, creating man, is creating man with, a, with the body he has because he's thinking, okay, I've got to scrunch myself down into this finite position so that I'm going to represent myself to human beings, reveal myself to human beings in a finite, in a, in, in a finite body What's the best possible body I can squeeze myself into so that I can effectively reveal who and what I am to to these creatures? So God doesn't just land on this shape that we have by happenstance. He chooses it specifically. In other words, I don't think there is a physical form that God could have used that would reveal Him uh, to us in a better way. So there's something of value to man. And even his physical body is well designed by the Lord. We're made a little lower than the angels. Verse 5 says, and we are crowned with glory and honor. Now that's really an interesting phrase. I'm just going to wrap up with this because we need to come back and mine Psalm 8 a little more before we go back to Hebrews 2. For you've made him a little lower than the angels. So angels are originally set over man. And why that is, we'll get to next time. But the key word here that is translated lower is a PL, uh, a PL imperfect of a word that means, of haser, haser, which means to lack, to have a need, or to be lacking. 
fact, the Septuagint translates it with a word with almost the identical meaning, ilatao, which has to do with missing something. He's lacking. In other words, the focus is on the fact that we just don't really have a whole lot of abilities. We lack something. And it reminds me of, uh, of 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, where Paul learns that God's grace is sufficient in our weakness. The, the, what undergirds this whole concept is that man is made to be dependent upon God. We are made to be weak. We are made to be unable to solve our problems without being dependent upon God because only when we are successful in being dependent upon Him do we achieve real honor and glory that has eternal consequence. Of course, this is only fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is crowned with glory and honor, and we will all recognize that at the second coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in Psalm 8.5, the focus is on the fact that we are made with these limitations because it's to force us to be dependent upon His grace. So this very word, haser, is a word that drips with grace. That we are limited and we are to be dependent upon Him for everything in our life. Jesus Christ pioneered that life of dependency when He was on the planet during the time of the Incarnation. We'll come back and look at that more next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank You for this time together, a reflection of who we are, that You care about us, You look intently at us, You examine the human race, You focus on us, You created us to be dependent and to trust You, and in Your grace You have promised to give us everything we need, and indeed as believers You have supplied us with everything for life and godliness, our spiritual life. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we've learned this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.